first, our first keynote. Um, now, I think it's, it's reasonable to say everyone's heard of Peter Lorge. Um, he's done a lot of things. He's written and edited lots of books and journals. But when his book, um, The Chinese Martial Arts from Antiquity to the 21st Century came out, everyone seemed to be talking about it straight away. There was a real, a real buzz and everyone was, was really excited about it. Some people were a little bit irked by some of the, you know, historians and, and theoreticians are different things, but everyone loved the book. Um, and I was lucky enough to meet him last year in uh, Muju in South Korea at the Taekwondo one. Um, and I thought that he would be a fantastic keynote because I've never before seen someone so desperately try to engage an audience of people, most of whom had been bussed in, right, to make up the numbers, didn't speak English, were much more interested in their telephones, um, and also a lot of dignitaries who were only there for the, for the, for the formality of it, who actually just were asleep. Um, but nonetheless, <laughs> uh, Peter kept trying to engage this audience, and it was, it was fantastic to watch, actually. Um, and then later on at the same conference, I watched him um, be forced to dance. Um, he was forced to do a kind of, a dance to a kind of invented Taekyon Tai Chi hybrid type dance that I believe the presenter was trying to pass off as a supposedly ancient and traditional Korean art, despite the fact that it had almost certainly been invented at some point in the immediately preceding months, right? <laughs> Possib possibly weeks. Um, and in fact, I didn't just watch it, I actually filmed it, because um, I thought it might come in handy. Um, <laughs> so in any case, I knew that um, Professor Lodge would be an ideal person to address us here today. He certainly has first-hand experience on the subject that he'll address us today on, which is the invention of traditional martial arts. Um, plus, I still have the film of his pained and painful performance of a traditional made-up martial dance. So, ladies and gentlemen, Professor Peter Lodge. Well, I, I, I wanted to thank Paul for inviting me. No, screw this, this isn't going to work. Um, and, and for watching a bunch of Korean uh, martial Taekwondo students sitting there trying to not deal with me. But I'm used to teaching, so I, I have lots of students <laughs> sleeping in class. Um, so uh, while I was writing this paper, uh, I, I went into train uh, and we had a belt test and uh, and I was struck by you know Brazilian jiu-jitsu does this big thing that they're not traditional but but now it's been around long enough that some people are actually having traditional Brazilian jiu-jitsu versus non-traditional which is just hysterically funny um, and uh, so we had this and in and in Brazilian jiu-jitsu at least the school I'm at when you have a test uh, for this was some white belts who were testing up to blue belt, and you, you don't know when it's coming. And they just sort of say, uh, okay, uh, everyone line up, uh, you, you, and you, belt test, and for white belts, it's uh, 15 minutes of nonstop sparring, and you feed in new people every minute with rising belts. So basically, you're doomed. They're, they're, the, the point of this, you, you don't, you don't have to, it's not a demonstrated technique, it's survival. You, you just have to, you can tap whenever, but you can never give up. And then it goes up to 20 minutes for purple belt, and then 25 for brown belt, and then after that, you know, 
it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, uh, and, and this is some very non-traditional thing, and then they beat you with belts uh, afterward. This is very weird, it's not anything, but I was struck when I was watching this about how traditional it was in a lot of respects. We have geese on, uh, there's a lot of bowing. The, the traditional bowing and belt stuff shows up when you do these things. Uh, I, personally, I did a lot of traditional martial arts, so you know I automatically turn away from any black belt to, to tie my belt. I just can't, I, you know, I, I just can't do that. I, if, I were, if there were a mat on this stage and I walked on, if I saw a mat, I would like bow before I walked onto the mat, because you do, and, and, and you have this notion this is traditional. Um, now, I, I've been studying martial arts, I realized, as I was calculating, coming up almost 35 years uh, in about, starting next month. And um, I've trained in modern martial arts and traditional martial arts and combinations. I've had untraditional teachers. I've had traditional teachers. Uh, formally, I've been trained informally, belts and ranks without. Uh, and, and I've come to one conclusion after all of this that sums it up, which is I'm not really good at martial arts. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of pathetic. So I really have to love this stuff because, damn, you know, it just, it's after this long to not be any good is, you, you know, you got to love it. Uh, but I also had this question in my mind, which was, you know, I had a lot of really good teachers. And in fact, almost with one or two exceptions, all my teachers have been really good. I mean, really good martial artists. Many of them have been really good teachers as well, and I separate those things. And, um, you know, but can I say who was a really a master? Or at what point someone is a master? I don't know what happened. When, when Paul got picked up, when, when I got picked up in Korea, this, they sent some guy who had almost no English to pick uh, me up and, and one of the other people, and he said, you know, he's, he introduced himself and said, he's a, you know, he's a fourth degree black belt, he's a master. You know, and I thought, okay, so is it fourth degree that, and then, you know, uh, so it, it became clear to me, though, that, you know, calling your school traditional or not is not really a description of the art, but the way you imagine the art to be. So it's, it's how you think of it rather than some sort of objective standard. So, um, you know, many people have noted this, though. I don't, I don't want to come off as saying that I'm, you know, the first person to discover, hey, there's this modern construction of traditional martial arts. Uh, but most of the arts that we are practicing, even the ones where people are recreating from fight books and, you know, the, uh, the European stuff, which I think is really cool, uh, is, is essentially a 19th and 20th century art. All, all, basically everything we're practicing is 19th, 20th century. Uh, but they all required a traditional martial art, create this thing. So it's not really helpful for me to say that this is a new observation. What I'm going to try to get at today is um, why. Why? Do we have these ideas about what constitutes, and I, I put this in, in quotes, effective martial arts? I was scarred as a child. We had a principal who used to do quotes of things, and I, I always have this, you know, Mr. Graziano, students, and this is, I, I just can't do that. At least I can't do it non-ironically, and, and that's, you know, ruined too. Uh, so, but martial arts is different than film, then literature, uh, then art, 
this represented world, because there is a, there is a reality at some point. And there is a, a point where someone is saying, I learned this technique and it didn't work. You know, I got attacked, I trained, it didn't work. Uh, or I got attacked, it did work. And that has a certain legitimation for that practice, however you want to construct it. And so there, there is a little bit of difference, and this is where, as a historian, I, I have a somewhat different perspective than people who you know, do literature, who do you know, cultural studies more broadly and things, because despite all the postmodern theory, historians believe that there is a history. There is a reality, and, and you know, Donald Trump is the president of the United States in America, regardless of what the other cultural factors and the arguments we have about it, whatever rhetorically is said, it is true. So um, I have here, of course, a picture of, you have this picture of a samurai, or this is actually just a suit of armor there, and we have this idealized picture of the Shaolin monk. Uh, samurai stuff at least comes out of an armor suit that came from a time period. These constructions of what Shaolin monks look like are, you know, very dodgy. So uh, some of you are aware of this is uh, Ryoanji in Japan. And everyone gets very Zen, and they talk about the Zen guys sitting there and uh, in Zen meditation looking at the dry stone rocks. We have no evidence for that in the original construction of it whatsoever. Uh, all of the original buildings burned down. This, all the buildings that are there now, they were reconstructed in the 19th century. Uh, the lovely book some of you may have read, Shots in the Dark, and talks about the entire construction of all of these ideas about what Zen is and what what it means to do archery, and it means to do swordsmanship. Uh, it struck me the other day, uh, I was, was I doing something, and I thought, this notion we have of you know, kendo as uh, this traditional martial art, and you think, well, no, because even if you look at where you strike, right, so you strike you know, a nice showman strike to the head, you wouldn't whack a guy in an iron helmet right in the iron helmet. You know, and you do a doe strike, you strike to the body, you're not going to hit someone in the armor. Uh, even a cote strike, to the, I mean, the glove is armored. You're not going to, that wouldn't be how you would fight someone in armor. But what you're looking at is a system that was designed for people who were fighting not in armor. Well, that wasn't when the samurai were fighting in war. That, that was when they were fighting duels. Their art had changed. So we have the modern, um, which is, of course, the counterpoint to what is traditional. And we have this association, and this is where it gets problematic, of modernity with the West. This, this question of tradition and cultural authenticity, which becomes, which is this issue of pre-modern society, is authentic. And authenticity is a hideously large topic I've been to a conference at Berkeley on authenticity and then the one they did two years later on faking it. And, and it's you know, the flip side of that. But authenticity, this search for authenticity, and for a lot of reasons, what is modern is not authentic. You know, you will not get someone sit there and say, wow, you know, you'll know that we've got, you know, in 100 years and they're going, wow, authentic McDonald's. Uh, but you know, to be fair to that, McDonald's is changing. They're actually changing their hamburgers. They're getting away from frozen hamburgers and they're going to do fresh because, and, and someone say, well, they're actually going back to the original formation of, uh, is that authenticity? Uh, the other thing is if you are in the rest of the world, the West is inherently inauthentic. 
So if you are being Western, you are not being authentic. Uh, okay, so uh, the West breaks down uh, the morals, it undermines the youth, it degrades your health, and it generally destroys society. And again, you know, we have all the experience of recent elections. Uh, I was going to come make fun of my friends here about Brexit, and then, well, we had our election, and so, you know, not much to say there. Uh, but, you know, uh, there you go. Um, so now, of course, there's nothing monolithic about the West if you're in the West. I was just in Paris, and I was in Vienna before that, and I was over here, and you don't, you don't sort of say to someone, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to the West. Uh, you know, I'm going to different countries in Asia. Uh, I'm going to different countries in Europe. So the problem is that we have is, uh, can a society modernize without westernizing? And the Western societies, we get the flip side of that, which is, can we reach back to some authentic other culture, because ours is shot, you know, and, and get some authentic Asian something? Uh, so can you, and then the other thing, can you take up modern technology without taking up Western values? Uh, do values attach to technology and science? Uh, and we have here the Olympics, of course, and uh, for those of you, this one's a little dark with this light up here, uh, this guy has a nice, uh, has a guy in Kesa Katami, which just sucks. I mean, being in Kesa is just really horrible. And obviously, root for the blue guy. Um, so, um, light, look at the light, look at the light. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Oh, there you go, much, much, much clearer. A bit more? It goes really slowly, so it yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's a mood lighting Just thing. I'm trying to get you relaxed. <laughs> don't worry, I don't want anything from you. Although I was telling Paul before that the last time I was in Cardiff, it was over a woman, so um, many years ago. Okay, so to, I'm going to add one last loaded term to all of this, which is sports, or in we're in England, so sport. It's this whole that's really the biggest difference between uh, England and America in language. It's plurals. We study math, you guys study maths. And I'm going, wait, is there more than one? Um, one is quite enough. So um, we have this concept of, of, of sport or sports, which uh, this is this modern Western concept. You could argue, I mean, if there's someone say the Greeks had sports and that's really important. This Western concept that from the non-West comes in and destroys all traditional physical culture. So, if you are playing basketball, you are not, and you are not, actually you should be not American, you know, you are not participating in an authentic physical culture from your culture. But everyone plays, you know, basketball is worldwide. Uh, and then all the socialists play soccer, or as you call it, football. And, uh, but even, even in America now, because, you know, we're being taken over that way, we have all these people playing uh, uh, soccer as well. So martial artists themselves divide very strongly over this concept of whether martial arts goes under sports. Uh, so uh, we had a bunch of articles published in the International Journal of the History of Sport. And uh, that managed to get my, the chair of my department waved both of those off as, because one, it was martial arts, and you know, okay, the book was, uh, but, but martial arts in a history of sport, you know, 
the guy who works on you know 16th Christianity and 16th century Germany you know that's that's a serious subject and if it's a German subject it's obviously no laughing matter uh, and, you know it's the great Mark Twain joke about that um, and uh, but more sources it's not just sport and so even we get uh, Kano Jigoro the founder of judo who was actually the first Japan's first delegate to the International Olympics. He, and he was actually an education official. He created the uh, curriculum for judo in Japanese schools. And he didn't want judo in the Olympics because he thought it would diminish it. It would make it less. Now, of course, like so many things, uh, he was well, well ignored on that, and they did it anyway. Uh, and when I give a version of this paper, uh, a uh, different aspect, which I'll come to shortly. In China, uh, in uh, October, I'll be talking much more about these issues of which martial arts get into the Olympics. I mean, I showed you, you know, Taekwondo's in, Judo's in, Wushu is not. And the Chinese are well pissed off about that. And now Wushu is as invented as these arts and is as authentically Chinese as, you know, yes, the word is old, no, the practice is not. Uh, okay. So a sport that can be taught in school as part of a general education of children, which was what Kano wanted, he, was, he thought this would be more than a sport. It would teach them to be better people. So a government, however, can support sports in the Olympics, but governments are not really good at supporting unarmed martial arts or even armed martial arts. All right. So uh, I have to get Kung Fu Panda in at some point. And in response to this, where am I going with all of this? So sports and physical education tie together many of the issues I've raised thus far, uh, but the, through the critical lens of nationalism. If there is a national art form in any sphere, it directly answers the question of national identity, that great issue of modernity. Which traditions are mine? Which traditions are yours? Uh, and which ones are part of our nationality or country? Do our traditions belong to our locality, our region, or our nation? Uh, in the 21st century, we can all lay claim to all sorts of identities and traditions. Politicians try to mix these in very specific amounts and try to say, well, these things go together, and all of you who have those things belong with me. And someone, but those things are bad, those people are over there. And you're always like, well, no, actually, I don't, no, no, you have to associate this with this. Uh, and that's when we get these very nationalistic leaders who come in and they start trying to define very specifically what it is to be, as we would say now, Turkish uh, or British, you know, not European. Uh, the, these things are, and they're done for specific political reasons, even as we argue about them. We may not agree. Uh, the other thing that happens with martial arts in particular, but also other sports, is that outsiders come in and lay claims to parts of those traditions but, you know, I'm not Chinese. People realize that fairly quickly. Uh, and and uh, if I do Chinese martial arts, you know, uh, uh, my wife was at a conference in China and she said something to one of the people who'd been there. Well, you know, well, but you, you were over, you know, Peter cooked Chinese for you. And she said, yes, but nothing terribly fancy. And, and to me, that was actually a great compliment, which was that I had, my, my, my Chinese food was, was so, you know, 
ordinary for a Chinese person that she didn't sit there and say, well, it's amazing that it didn't taste like crap. She said, yeah, but I didn't go out and really cook anything fancy. You know? And that's, you know, well, but is that Chinese food that I cooked, which is authentically Chinese to a Chinese person if they tasted it, can it be authentic if I made it? And they're, well, no, obviously. Or I can't really do it right, even if I copy it. So um, th these are fairly significant issues and people struggle with. Because my, a Chinese friend of mine said, she cooks Chinese food, but she can't really cook. It's Chinese food because she's Chinese. You know, she really can't cook Chinese food. Uh, so tradition uh, is an effective way of separating culture from nation uh, or political allegiance. Someone can connect to this other tradition, even if they aren't part of this, although at the risk, being an academic, of appropriation. <gasps> Do not appropriate other people's cultures. That's bad. Uh, tradition can, in fact, be repackaged and exported, uh, while the source culture retains authority over what is actually authentic. One of the problems of wushu for the rest of the world when the Chinese wanted to propose it is, well, who's going to say what's, who's going to judge the performance in the Olympics. And, they were, and the Chinese were like, well, we are. Uh, and they said, well, are there non-Chinese people who are qualified wushu people? Now, well, I mean, no. I mean, you're not Chinese. How, how could you properly judge that? And people said, I don't think we just want to have a game where you get to be <laughs> the judge. Um, so uh, the martial arts is a great example of this. Chinese practitioners tried to introduce a simplified version of Tai Chi to the rest of the world in the 1930s. It actually was at the, the Olympics. Uh, there are modern versions of Japanese and Korean martial arts that we've gotten exported to the West after World War II. One of the great things about Bruce Lee, which I, I was having a conversation with someone about uh, the, the television show Kung Fu, and how, you know, looking back, if you actually watch it now, the, the martial arts is awful. Uh, but I still have this nostalgia, and, you, and people say, well, I, was, I watched Bruce Lee, and it got me into martial arts. Like, there is almost no Chinese martial arts in the United States. I mean, in terms of popularity of arts. Despite all this whole Bruce Lee thing that's been around since, you know, what, the 70s and 60s, there is very little Chinese martial arts around. So Bruce Lee inspired generations of Americans at least, I don't, want to, I don't know how it is in the rest of the world because it's all very idiosyncratic, to study judo, to study karate, to study taekwondo. Uh, and, and this is why I always, there's always this like, and people said, and he got all these people into, they, I want to do kung fu. Yeah, but no one's doing kung fu. They're all doing these other arts. There, there's a kind of a disconnect there. Uh, and on the other hand, you have Mike Tyson who said that you know, he was really inspired by Bruce Lee. Uh, so. Um, so, but all of the exported arts claim authenticity. So I just want to pause here for a moment and say that, so there's two ways of approaching this stuff. One is the question of nationalism. Um, and my wife insisted that no one would get this. I said, I'm going to Great Britain. They're going to know who Eddie Izzard is. Uh, I will not use this slide in China. Uh, I can just imagine having to break down into a 10-minute discussion in Chinese to explain what on earth he could be possibly talking about. Um, so modernity. But I'm not going to do that. And then we have the question of modernity over or nationalism. Uh, it's really functionally, I'm going to emphasize modernity over nationalism, but you really can't separate these things. So 
for uh, modernity, I'll give you the Louis Kahn Salk building. It's, by the way, I accidentally ran into this. I was at a conference in San Diego, and I was taking a walk along uh, a slightly different route to get into the university. And I kind of walked and went, oh, that's kind of an interesting building. And I kind of walked. And this, it's, a, it's a functioning research institute, the Salk Institute. And I kind of looked at it. Oh my god, I'm standing in this iconic, modern, architectural, Louis Kahn building. And like I said, it is fully as magnificent. Uh, it, it, it's, it's amazing. And you sort of thought, wow, I didn't even register this was here. So let's talk about modern. Uh, but I'm going to emphasize that I take a very broad view of what constitutes martial arts, including, in my definition, Western boxing, Western wrestling, fencing, as well as uh, the new historically, historical European martial arts, shooting, and by I mean archery and guns, and that's not just because I do stuff on the history of guns. Um, Self-defense classes, Krav Maga, other forms of combat. My definition is very broad, and the uh, flip side, the, the other side of it, now we're becoming a field so we can actually have conflicts. Uh, is Barry Allen's uh, narrower definition of Asian martial arts uh, practice as primarily concerned with self-cultivation. So I, I, I like my definition better. It, it has a danger of getting fuzzy around the edges because there are dance things. There's some stuff that's, is it really martial art? But I, I'm willing to risk that fuzziness to avoid Barry's narrower definition because I, I, I feel like that definition is very modern and possibly Orientalist. And whereas I'm willing to withstand a little bit of maybe modernity, uh, in my business, I cannot stand any amount of Orientalism. That's, that's about as, you know, I might as well be throwing bags of puppies into the river uh, uh, as, as, you know, be like show up as an Orientalist. Um, OK. So um, I also need to give you my background a little bit because where I, this is probably the most uh, uh, martial arts competent room I've been in since I was in class on Thursday. Uh, but uh, usually when you give an academic talk about martial arts, there's a whole bunch of people there who have never done anything. Uh, and, uh, and you're lucky if they've actually seen a martial arts movie. And they're kind of looking at you like, uh, but I, I, I'm currently doing, uh, I guess the last coming out, eight years of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and mixed martial arts. But I started in, you know, full contact kickboxing with a very street-oriented thing, and I've done Chinese wrestling, and I've done kendo, and I've done kenjutsu, and uh, aikido, and I did taiji sword when I was in Beijing, and I've done. Ugh, a whole bunch of other stuff I can't even remember right now, and that's age, not impact. Um, so I just wanted you to keep that in mind so that um, these notions of mixed and traditional, which I'm going to come back to the mixed martial arts later, are, are, are very present for me. So um, modern, of course, this is Manet's uh, painting, which is the first modern painting. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on modern because why would you? Uh, no, sorry, much modernists in the room. So one of the great divides in academia is between modernists and pre-modernists. Uh, there's no, and what's really frustrating is there's no strict point when modernity happens. You talk to any number of people, and modernity is a different 
And it means something very specific. You know, now we have modern architecture. Now we have modern literature. Uh, you can't peg anyone down. In the history department, when we have these discussions, we, you know, you, when is modern? And when you're talking to an American historian, all the American historians are more modern. You know, and, and it's not even an issue for them because it does, nothing divides. And uh, so the fact that I raised this issue shows you that, well, quite obviously, I'm a pre-modernist because modernists don't care about this issue. I mean, they talk about it, but they don't. The pre-modern is that stuff that happened before. They draw a line somewhere. It's kind of arbitrary. If I've pissed off some modernists already with that one here. Okay. They, they, they say, and what usually the, the, the modern line is, I don't want to talk about that. So all the stuff that came before is not. And we're going to talk about this. Uh, scientists tend to be modernists. You know, you don't, we run into this in library resources if you're in a university. The scientists are buying journals that cost $30,000 a year, and they don't see why you would want to retain a journal that was written 30 years ago. What could possibly be of value in something that was written 30 years ago? And we're like, well, how do you know the past? So. Um, Pre-modernists tend to think that whatever came before us is probably important. And I'm not saying this one, one uh, approach is better than the other because I'm being diplomatic. Uh, I'm just saying they're different. I have friends who are modernists. You know, we just don't leave them alone with the children. Um, so there's modernism, this other great slide I got, and it said, uh, all this weird architecture, and some of this is Chinese, and it says, no tradition, no identity, no heritage, no craft. Now, my wife's an architectural historian, and she was, what do you mean no craft? Craft is fundamental to the construction of modern uh, architecture, because they were getting away from this sort of industrial architecture. And we want to have craft. So, well, this is somebody's slide. Uh, you know, you control the internet and come up with all kinds of stuff. So when we see the martial arts, we, we, we see a similar process. Some people emphasize lineage, tradition, and history to legitimize their art. We're talking about legitimacy here, and legitimacy ultimately comes back to authority. And authority is an enormous topic that kind of looms over this. Other people disparage those markers in favor of some sort of rational. I always love it. It's always this rational thing. What works? You know, let's, let's think about this rationally. Uh, and then they're going to claim that you know, you, uh, a pre-modern art is not useful for modern times. You know, why would you learn to swing a sword? What's the likelihood of you having it? Now, I, I do point out, my wife and I were coming back from a Kenjutsu class with very heavy boken. And we were walking back from the class, and we were in Philadelphia, which is not a safe city. Uh, and uh, this guy started you know, saying lots of things that seemed very threatening. And I thought, good lord, what's the likelihood? of me ever being in a situation in which I was actually, you know, carrying a fear, fairly serious boken, you know, and fortunately it didn't escalate. But, you know, this is like something out of a movie, right? You know, like you're walking back with, armed uh, with, with a pre-modern weapon. Uh, so the construction of modernity, at least in the martial arts, focuses on utility. But utility is not clear. What do I mean by utility? If I practice a self-defense martial art my whole life and I never have called upon to use it, was that useful? Uh, if I, but what if I didn't like practicing and it was hard and, it was, and I could have been doing something else with my time? Was that useful? 
as opposed to if I practice Tai Chi and it makes me happy, and even if it doesn't measurably make your health better, is that better? I mean, you know, my mother tried Tai Chi in her 70s. She goes to the gym seven days a week. And she came back and she says, eh. she said, I, I got more exercise walking to and from the park. Um, you know, but what was she looking for? She wasn't looking for self-defense. She wasn't looking to cultivate chi. She was, she was looking for some other kind of exercise. And she likes her water aerobics class. And she goes and does her some weights and some swimming. And, you know, and, and she's just looking. So, you know, what's effective? Uh, so, a modern person, most of us are not going to be armed, I'm presuming. Uh, you know, the, 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 the ninja members of the audience I obviously can't see. So, um, they, they may well be armed. Uh, and let's see you catch them on camera. Um, so, what art has the right answers for modern self-defense? Or are there multiple arts? Are there multiple answers to those questions? Uh, now, I, I've seen some teachers in, of martial arts directly disparage lineage and tradition. Say, oh, you know, that, that stuff's garbage. You, know, you, you shouldn't be focused on that. Uh, they, the, one, now the good answer to that is why that's a problem is because it's, it's, it limits your practice. If you say, I only want to do what the guy taught me, that's an intellectual straitjacket, and that's not good. But if I want to say, well, I shouldn't follow anyone who came before, like it doesn't matter, that's also a little bit weird. So um, Bruce Lee is actually uh, apparently told Dan in Asanto at one point that Jeet Kune Do was going to keep changing. You know, Jeet Kune Do next year will be different than this year. And, and you're like, well, that's great if you're on a personal journey. It's a pain if you are to have a school and a curriculum, and students want to come in, and you don't want to come in and the student says, yeah, I was away for a year, you know, uh, my, my uh, my wife had a child, you know, we had a child, and I had to stop progress. I came back, and what happened? Oh, 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 oh my goodness, I'm not, I don't know what we're doing anymore. Oh, we changed it. Everything that you were doing before is different. What? Uh, we had a personal journey, and you weren't there, and we got far away from you. So um, this was a problem, you know, and we all have different notions about what martial arts is for. Now, the funny thing is if you go to a website, if you're going to join a martial arts school or take, up a, or take up a practice, and you go to the website, and what will they do on that website? They will give you a history of the art and some biographies of the instructor. You know, why? Because why should I study with you? Because we have this art, and okay, and this, this instructor has done this, and he's done that. We have to have some means of judging because we don't have uh, any other way to know. So how many get that reference? No? Not too many? <laughs> there you go. OK. People with less hair. Um, so uh, I began uh, this discussion by noting that many people pointed out that, that modern martial arts invented traditional martial arts. So, um, but, but what was going on before modernity came about, whenever that was? You know, I, I always have this image of these guys sitting in different cultures, and someone comes in and, all right, everyone. Modern just happened, or you know, I was looking at their watch. Oh, shoot, it's modern. Uh, what do we do now? So it's, it's very troubling when you read, I'm, as a historian, and you keep reading all these people generation after generation. Uh, apparently, uh, human beings have been in a, a lamentable state of decline forever. <laughs> Young people are perpetually slacking off, failing to maintain previously strict standards, and generally disappointing their elders. Um, 
There, someone had a, a quote from like 12th century Oxford talking about the students wake up late, they're out <laughs> drinking, they don't read, they don't study, they're not coming to the, you know, you're, you know, I was thinking at the time like, wow. <laughs> so um, now in China, uh, okay, who recognizes that? Okay, Harold Bloom, okay. Yeah. Uh, in China, continue what went before, following tradition, was what legitimized something. Uh, now, in 1973, where Harold Bloom came out with this wonderful, thin book called The Anxiety of Influence about poetry, uh, his book would not have made sense to a Chinese poet. The notion that you would try, as a, as a poet who's trying to establish himself, to create, even if it was false, a break with the past. Ah, I'm not following those previous poets. Would have made no sense to a Chinese poet. It would have been like, what are you doing? The Chinese side was to do the opposite. If you're going to break with the past, you have to make out like you're being completely consistent with the past. You're always trying to show that you're completely consistent, even if you're breaking with the past. And that will include Confucius, and I have a quote from him later. Um, any new policy a Chinese statesman would propose in traditional China, pre-modern China, would say, would always claim, oh, no, 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 this, this goes back to the past. We're, we're not doing anything, but that has been done in the past. Uh, and, and then you'd have a historical argument at court, which is great for a historian, because basically a bunch of guys with PhDs arguing about historical precedent to back up their policies. It's great stuff. Um, but let's talk about something else, the wrestling record. This is, uh, this is the uh, Jiao Li Ji um, by a man, uh, the author is a man by the name of uh, Diao Luzi or Diao Lozi. We know nothing about him. This is the earliest extant martial arts or text on martial arts in China. I believe it is in the world, although I, I don't make the generalization because I don't know the Western textual tradition as well. Uh, we actually don't know who he was. Uh, we have the text. I'm translating it. Uh, Paul is very happy to hear this because I'm writing something. This is one of the three texts that I'll be writing about in, his, in this reader he's doing. So he can feel a little more confident that I'm, I'm not totally slacking off. Um, this is a, not a manual of techniques, however. This is a manual, is a compilation of instances of historical, of wrestling that was recorded in Chinese histories. Why? To prove that wrestling has pedigree. Wrestling is a legitimate Confucian activity. It shows up in our classic Confucian texts. So it's legit. Did I do something wrong? Um, that me or you come? Okay. Um, so the work, well, it's a classical Chinese text. Well, it's literary Chinese, if you want me to be precise, written in the 10th century. Who's reading it? <coughs> Literate men in the 10th century. So he's not writing this for ordinary people. He's writing this for other literate people with historical records to show you this is a legitimate practice. He also defines terms. I'm giving you some of the terms. Some of these terms some of you will recognize, uh, um, which is you know, Xiangpu, which becomes sumo. Uh, why does he do this? Because obviously he's trying to show you that it's a legitimate practice. Now, we have other imperial bibliographies. The reason why we know about this uh, it shows up in the Sung Dynasty imperial bibliography 
under the, it's not in the military texts, which is interesting. It's under the, um, it's, a, it's a, a mixed, it's kind of there's a grab bag, everything, you know, this, 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 you know, uh, Confucianists, uh, medical text, and whatever other things you had around the library you couldn't figure out a spot for. Uh, martial arts texts, by which I mean texts on striking and archery, show up in the Han Dynasty imperial bibliography under military texts. They get removed from the category of military texts. I'll tell you at some point when I figure it out. Uh, because I'm tracking the military texts, and suddenly there are no martial arts texts. And the, the categories firm up. All right. Uh, wrestling has a strong association with steppe people, which is to say non-Chinese people. Uh, some of you might be aware, of course, the, the great sumo right now are Mongolian in Japan. And this is very upsetting to the Japanese. Why? Because sumo is supposed to be the quintessential Japanese martial art that can only be done properly by Japanese people, oh shoot, they're Mongolians. Uh, and worse than that, the Mongolians were, some of them were not taking it very seriously. One of them had to, he, he said he couldn't go to some tournament or some uh, a ceremonial event because he, he was injured, and he went back to Mongolia and he was caught on film playing soccer, which has got to be one of the most amusing images. Sumo wrestler playing soccer. Um, you know, because, you know, just by virtue of that combination. Uh, but why? But so you always have these non-Chinese people who are doing wrestling. It's very Turkic. You go over to Turkey, you get that. You go all across Central Eurasia, wrestling is really a serious art. So they recognize that, but there are supposed to be great Chinese wrestlers. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is wrestling was a core activity of Han Dynasty festivals. Now these festivals are not some minor thing. These are the only th the ways you celebrated both religious events, if you had foreign dignitaries show up. Uh, the other, and to make you feel better about, for those of you who haven't read my book, you know, and it's now come out in paperback. Uh, not that they told me, I found out on Amazon. <laughs> uh, I, I was actually on Amazon, look, where do academics find their own uh, citation information? We go to Amazon to, uh, what, what was that book? When did, I, when did that come out? And then, oh, it's coming out in paperback. And I, I, I emailed my uh, uh, editor. I said, did, did those two books, did you guys put them out in paperback? And I said, let me check. Said, oh, yeah, I, I guess we did. Sorry about that. You know, I'm not, I mean, I'm not uh, unhappy. I, I was expecting it. You, know, you get online, and they've discontinued them. So, um, But wrestling and martial arts performance was part of these festivals. These festivals became the root of Chinese theater. Chinese theater was born out of martial arts performance. It was not included in it. It came out of it. So when you realize that when you look at a Chinese martial arts movie, and you see the performance of wushu, you realize that theater is based in martial arts in China, not the other way around. And the theater people all know this. They're like, oh, yeah, duh. I was going, oh, like, it's a revelation for me. That, that, I go to uh, academic conferences so that I can walk around feeling like an idiot. Um, now, what we do not get in this book, this Zhao Liji, this wrestling manual, is styles. There is no mention of styles. Uh, he doesn't cite earlier books on martial arts. Uh, there's, no in, there's no reference to tradition at all or to specific kinds of training. Now, we, we know there must have been books left, but we don't see them. 
So this is the great uh, Confucius quote, uh, I transmit, but I do not create. This is a lie. Uh, Confucius is very much changing things, but he can't say, I'm just tossing everything and coming. This is a totally new plan, guys. So he says, nothing, everything I'm doing is from the past. So for Confucius, this is how you validate in Chinese things. You say, it's from the past. Um, Pre-modern China, the connection to the past was the ultimate legitimation. Uh, breaking with the past would have been discredited after the fall of the Qin Dynasty in 206 BCE. Uh, as no lesser figure than Confucius has claimed here, that I transmit but I do not create. Now, uh, we have to jump, however, from the 10th century to the 16th century to get to the next martial arts text that we have. This is, of course, the Jixiao uh, Xinxu by Qi Ji Guang. Uh, I have an article out on martial arts in uh, Qi Ji Guang's practice. It's coming out in a book on Qi Ji Guang on maritime defense or something or other. Again, I'd have to look on Amazon to figure out what the actual source is. Um, also, by the way, I, I noted, because you know, my wife said to me, if you put up a page image with Chinese on it, someone's going to ask you to translate it. Uh, and since I, I, which doesn't bother me, because I, I, I'm retranslating this text as well. Uh, but I was struck as I was translating, there are two translations available of this out. Uh, I think they're both wrong. Because it, particularly this last passage uh, is actually, these are wrestling techniques. They're not striking techniques. Uh, and uh, Doug Wiles translates it. He, he's, he's a Taiji guy. So I'll get to them in a sec. But we, we jumped six centuries to this, this manual of 1560. General Chi's chapter on unarmed martial arts gets a lot of attention, deservedly so. It's the first, the earliest extant Chinese martial arts manual that has illustrations. Also important, he has a chapter on archery, uh, which tells you how to shoot a bow. Uh, however, 24 years, years later, he revises this manual and drops both the unarmed combat chapter and the archery chapter. And he starts out the weapons and he says, guns are the most important thing. <laughs> and then he proceeds to argue that fire weapons, guns go into the category of fire weapons, have existed since time immemorial in China all the way back. So even while he is discarding something and bringing up this new guns, he has to try to prove that, in fact, we've always had fire weapons and guns are just a variation of that. Uh, so we are fortunate to have translations of the unarmed chapter uh, by Doug Weil. There's another one, this young person's name escapes my mind, says so many things. The archery chapter has been translated by Stephen Selby, who does wonderful amounts of stuff on archery. Uh, there is a 1637 archery manual by Gao Ying, which has been translated by Justin Ma and Jie Tian. Uh, Jie Tian yeah. And uh, this uh, Gao Ying's manual is completely different on how to shoot arrows. Not that you or I could tell unless you're an archer. Uh, I mean, because it's, you know, where you, if you do archery and it's, you know, it's like your hand here or is it here? Are you, you know, they're, they're very technical aspects. Uh, Gao Ying's manual would be completely ignored in China and would become a classic in Japan. Uh, Qi Ji Guang's manual stayed important in China 
uh, Gaoying's manual had almost no effect in China, but it went to Japan. Japan, the Japanese thought he was great. And then the, man, then the dynasty fell in 1644. The Manchus came in, and they didn't care about Chinese archery techniques because they had their own archery tradition. And there is, by the way, now fights with the Mongolians who are reconstituting their, their archery tradition, and they're doing, using bows which are like the Manchu bows. And there was just an article, some Mongolian argued that, in fact, the Manchus got their bows from the Mongols originally. So it's actually the Manchus copying the Mongols. It's not the Mongols copying the Manchus. These are serious people. I mean, you may not be able to take it seriously, but, but that's, that's nationalism for you. OK. Um, now, we have in Qi Guang's practice, he says there were these other kinds of martial arts. Uh, Doug Wilde translates them as styles. I, I think that is both um, anachronistic and deeply inaccurate. Because unfortunately, Qi Guang says, well, there's this, there's the guys who do this, and, then, and they use the term jia, which just means sort of those guys. Who, you know, the, the, it could just be a school. It's also not clear whether or not he was talking about texts or schools. We have no idea how many people were practicing this. And uh, nobody, there is no historical record of any of those groups outside of this manual. I ran all the digital searches. They don't show up anywhere. So I have no idea where he's getting this from. And he says, OK, and these guys are partial. Uh, but what's interesting is, what does he do? He says, we have, these guys have great kicks. These guys have great strikes. These guys have great throws. So I'm going to take them all, and he creates mixed martial arts. He creates a simplified system that, as he puts it, has everything. Because he says, all those arts are great. All those guys are great, what they do. But each of them is incomplete. One has the top, one has the bottom, but it lacks the bottom. You know, you don't want that. So here is. 16th century MMA um, without Dana White and various other controversies and, and um, performance-enhancing drugs. So um, now why is this such an innovation? Chi Ji Guang had spent his life training troops. He grew up in a military family. And when I say he grew up in a military, I mean his family was a registered military family. They hereditarily held uh, uh, officership. He didn't have, apparently, a military martial arts curriculum to draw upon, or he would have used it. So he creates one. It stays around for a little while, and then he gets rid of it in 24 years. Why? Not really sure. I have theories, but we don't have time. Um, OK. He uses tradition, though, to justify what he's doing. All right. Another Taiji, another martial arts. Uh, now, of course, what's interesting here is what he's doing starts to sounding awfully modern. Uh, now, as I said, Douglas Wilde translates these other things as styles. And, but Douglas Wilde was trying to show that these techniques were consistent with Taiji. Doug was trying to get at Taiji. Uh, and you know, to the extent that, yes, people are you know, doing stuff, it looks like Taiji. If you, you know, uh, another martial arts historian, uh, Xu Zhen, attempted to connect the Chen village origin of Taiji through Chen Wanting, who lived from 1580 to 1660, to a long fist style connected to Sung Taizu. And Sung Taizu is my man because he's the founder of the dynasty I work on, and I did his campaign, so I know. And it was really weird to find out he's 
These, you have Sung Taizu, you'll see, if you see a Taizu Longchuan, sorry, Changchuan, you know, long fist Taizu style, and it's always, and they'll see something, they'll say Zhao, you know, or Sung Taizu, because Zhao is their family name. Taiji people, you know, so there's this connection. However, the name Taiji Chuan only dates to the middle of the 19th century. Again, does the name matter? If the name doesn't matter, you say, well, it's just a changing name, but the practice is consistent. You can argue that, but as a historian, I can't help you. Because unless you can show that they're doing the same thing, if something's called something else, I have to take it as something else. And then if they are doing the same thing, you have to ask, why did they change the name? Or are you really telling me that over centuries, exactly the same practice is happening? Uh, now, of course, it dates to the middle of the 19th century when lots of other martial arts, modern martial arts, take shape. Uh, Taiji people have tried to connect the art to the Taoist immortal, Zhang San Feng, who has lived variously in the 11th century, the 12th century, the 13th century. Now, he's Taoist immortal. So it's possible he's just been living through all of that. And you, know, you just run into him. Again, as a you know, bubble-popping historian, I, I can't you know, go with the notion of a Taoist immortal. It, it, should some of you reveal yourselves to be such, I'm willing to go with that. Uh, the connection of Taiji to Taoism itself is also tendentious. Why was it done? To legitimize it. The connection with Mount Wudong. Mount Wudong did not have a martial arts tradition that has been invented and retrospectively glued onto it. Why? Because we have Shaolin and Wudong. We have Buddhism and Taoism. Uh, they have yet to make up, as to my knowledge, a Confucian martial art to, uh, uh, to balance. Then we could have the San Zhao Ruyi. Um, but we actually have no real information before Qi Ji Guang for techniques. Also important is Qi Ji Guang never mentioned Chen Village. He never mentioned Tai Ji. So instead of thinking of that as, here's the roots of it, you could say, here's certain proof that if anything like that existed, he didn't think so, that it was important, in 1560. And you, know, and you guys are like, 1560s, kind of, I mean, I know we're in England. But in England, even 1560s, you guys take it seriously. In China, you don't. But uh, in, in, and of course, I go from America. They're like, ah, what was happening in 1560? You know. Okay. Um, now we understand what well, we understand the modern world as a style is a modern invention, and even in modern times, the idea that people trained in only one style is seldom borne out. If you look at the biographies, and I have a these big famous Chinese martial artists, big dictionaries. If you go through those dictionaries, almost none of them studied only one martial art or only with one teacher. Why do you study with a different teacher even in the same martial art? Because a different teacher has a different emphasis. And they tend to do things. And you'll even see this show up in the movies, uh, the, all these Yip Man movies. And you know, oh, you know, and, and they go back. And oh, you got, well, you're kicking high now. Where did that come from? Oh, well, I'm, I'm the brother of this guy. So if I do it, then it's, it, then it's, it's Wing Chun. Like, you know, how, well, how, who decides what it is? Uh, like pre-modern times, there are skills rather than styles. So the idea that there's a style that exists for all eternity, in uniformity, unity, and shared, this is, this is just a myth. Um, style, uh, styles are part of the nationalist construction of martial arts. Uh, if you read, um, oh, what's that, Marrow of the Nation. Um, yeah, Andrew Morris, thank you. Andrew Morris' book, which is really good. And you actually start getting this thing where they're, they're sitting down and taking all these martial arts and saying, OK, you guys are all going to create styles now. 
and then they're going to become national. We're going to teach them at the national university. And then we will send out gym teachers, you know, phys ed teachers who will be accredited and they will teach, you know, okay, you're going to do internal style. Okay, you're going to do external style. You know, and, and why do they create this? They create this for national reasons because they don't want to think that, well, the guy in the South, and we've all seen enough martial arts movies here, I, I would guess. Uh, why are the guys in the South and the North and they're always arguing with each other? It's like, it was bigger than that. It's from one Guangdong to, you know, Fujian. It's from different places and, and the, the styles and how it changes. Um, so instead of getting, you want to have officially sanctioned school curricula, events with rules, generally speaking, orthodoxy. But what if traditions don't matter? Every generation starts with what came before. They can reject that entirely or they can move it around. They, uh, I was at a conference, uh, uh, Richard Rathbone used this great line about uh, the cultural Lego set. And everyone reaches into the Legos and they make a new thing, but they're all using, the, and you're using the same, the, the, the pieces are constituted and they're consistent and they're the same as the past, but we make something new out of them. You know, and so you can't just make anything because you're using old things, but you know, they're not entirely new, it's not entirely old. So uh, rejecting, someone says that you know, their martial art has exactly that technique. So if you say, there was some guy who was a Chinese martial artist who was responding to Joe Rogan, who was saying, ah, all that Chinese martial arts, you know, the kung fu, it's all weird. And they, they got the weird names, and you know, by the way, weird names uh, in these things. And this guy response was, well, if you look at the techniques you were talking about, we have that technique. You know, and this technique, we have that technique. You know, it's just called something else. And it's like, yeah, well, of course, everyone has these techniques. How many techniques? I mean, I don't know if any of you got, got into a martial art and someone does something, you're like, wow, nobody else does that. I've never seen, you know, I, I went into jujitsu and the first time I saw someone choked with their gi, I was shocked. Wait, you can use their gi to choke them with it? That was like the coolest thing ever. I mean, and now I've spent the last eight years, you know, trying to choke people with their clothing. You know, because why wouldn't that be cool? And someone said, well, you can't do that in the street. I said, I can do it with your shirt. You know, I'm, we're wearing, uh, 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 Joe Rogan just had a conversation with Guy Ritchie, the director. Guy Ritchie's been doing jujitsu for 20 years. And Joe Rogan said, I can't wear a tie. It makes me uncomfortable because I've got a rope around my neck. You know, I'm, I'm halfway to choked. Okay, so now rejecting tradition doesn't really separate you from the past. It separates an art from looking backwards. It's really a question of do you look backwards? This is back to this pre-modernist versus modernist. Do you look backwards for legitimacy or do you break with the past for legitimacy? Uh, I, I tend, you know, modernity emphasizes effectiveness. I like this, the British phrase, uh, fit for purpose. You know, does it, does it work? Uh, but tradition emphasizes fidelity to past practice. These are not necessarily in conflict. If you go to the past, there's a lot of really cool stuff, and a lot of it gets lost. Uh, so if you decide to be an enlightened orientalist and follow the profound, peaceful, polite, spiritual, oriental traditions of martial arts or yoga or tea, go on and this stuff, and you tell people, I, I am a Chinese military historian, and I have my entire career is and will be explain to people that people in China fought wars with real weapons and killed each other. And people are really upset about that. 
I'm, I'm, I'm really not joking. We, we were convinced that the Japanese were cool with killing people, right? They had samurai, Japanese are cool with killing people. And that the Chinese get this thing, oh, Chinese people are all peaceful and fight in self-defense and don't, and you're like, how do you think they created empires? Oh, well, the empires just came together. Uh, you know, and I, I, was, I kept threatening to do a body count for one, for one of my books, you know, like how many million, you know, how many hundreds of thousands of people died so that you could peacefully reunite. Um, so the, uh, what we get here, though, is this notion that uh, if you are trying to reach a, some sort of somatic fidelity with true Chineseness by practicing a traditional martial art. If that makes you happy, great, but you're living a lie because it doesn't exist. If you are trying to break with that past and get to a completely rational, ah, we don't go with that flowery stuff, we're just going to go with what works, you're also living a lie because they're both fake. It talks about your attitude. This is not, and it's how you approach it. Why do you have to make this distinction? So the uh, modern in our method is rude and lazy and immoral. And I think most of us here, and certainly I know all of the graduate students are working very hard. Uh, but we don't, we're actually, our problem is we work too hard. We, 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 the, my modern lifestyle, you know, I'm on the phone and I'm getting emails from people. As I'm traveling here, I'm getting emails from people saying, would you read this manuscript? Uh, could you evaluate this thing? You're thinking, you can't get on a plane and go around the world now and be out of touch with your work. And I sat there and thought, well, I'm going to, I, I sometimes thought, I'm going to go to a conference and I'm going to be working, right? I'm here. I mean, this, by the way, this is my 15-year-old fantasy that I would be able to talk about martial arts for like days and that would be my job. <laughs> you know, like, I'm working. <laughs> We're talking about martial arts and maybe some kung fu movies. I know, you're like, really? Really? Um, and all I have to do to maintain that is knock out a book every few years? Um, yeah, so I'm gonna do two more, the next two up, one will be a translation of this text with the Qi Ji Guang uh, two texts. And uh, the other one will be on the traditional, the traditional invention, uh, the modern invention of traditional martial arts. Um, so you know, this is cool. Um, we work really hard, but that's modern. Tradition is polite, hardworking, ethical. You send your child to a martial arts school um, to become an in, to uh, um, to become polite. You know, you don't want your child to be a, a, a lazy, fast food eating materialist and immoral. Um, the other thing about why do you do tradition or, or not tradition is attracting students to your school. The owner of a school I went to had a bus, a big bus on the side of it said, attention, karate can get you killed. And I thought, that's a little rude. But that's marketing. He's trying to get people to do his stuff. Now, scholars starting with Guo Xifen and Tang Hao in China in the early 20th century sought to deconstruct tradition and myth because historical tradition is literate or material truth. That's what you need. And it has to be quantifiable to be arguable. If you say Shaolin is the source of Kung Fu, what is your basis in real data? And what do you mean by Kung Fu? Ah. A myth or a legend is only quantifiable when it is written down and then can be fixed in time and place. The fixation doesn't make it true, though. It only makes it useful. Uh, why did someone at that time and place believe what they believed? 
So as Tang Hao discovered, the textual evidence for martial arts at Shaolin was very limited. When you actually date the texts upon which Shaolin claims are made, they quickly move into the realm of myth. I'm actually reading someone's manuscript now on the history of Shaolin, and it's got some issues. Um, this forces us to ask the, to my mind, more interesting question of why does a later person make a claim about the past? In other words, why did someone create a tradition? So when you look at traditions are created for reasons. Um, people make claims about the past because they validate the present. For non-historians, the past cannot be interrogated. And the very unreliability of the records of the past, their incompleteness at a minimum, makes it hard to disprove claims. Uh, where a historian, a professional historian, is taught you can't argue from lack of evidence. Uh, lay readers believe that they take the opposite tack. You know, you can't disprove something when you lack evidence. But if I say, you know, you're actually a three-eyed Martian, you want to say, no, I'm not. Prove it. Well, I'm, I'm not. You say, well, yeah, but three-eyed Martians can disguise themselves as humans. Well, how do I disprove that? Well, I can't disprove it. But, so that's, that's the historian's argument, which is, unless I can prove that you are, I can't argue that you are. Whereas it is often the case, well, but you can't say that they didn't do this. Well, there's a lot of things I can't say that didn't happen in the past. You know, there are differences. Um, so this is a conflict between the claim being false unless it can be proven true and a claim that, the true, that it's true unless it can be proved false. Um, I always wanted to use one of these things in England. Um, okay, so let's, let's get to the end. Uh, wonderful comment. Preserving tradition has become a nice hobby like stamp collecting. Um, traditional martial arts are not, for the most part, particularly old and may even turn out to be the same age as arts claiming to be modern and not traditional. Moreover, the traditions allegedly preserved in the traditional martial arts usually reflect the time and place in which they were created, which is to say the mid to late 19th century. In the 20th century, movies have been far more influential than history, or even practical, remember those practical considerations, or even practical considerations of combat in creating traditional martial arts. Until the 1981 movie, The Shaolin Temple, martial arts had completely stopped at Shaolin and had likely not been practiced in any significant way there for centuries. But after the movie, an entirely new institution of teaching traditional Shaolin martial arts was created. The creators and practitioners of this most traditional uh, of arts, most traditional Chinese martial arts, claim continuity with Shaolin practice. There is no evidence for this. It is a myth. Shaolin martial arts, as it is now practiced, was created in the 1980s. I mean, think about that. Does that, that doesn't, now, that doesn't mean that the guys practice, that the martial art they're doing is bad. Doesn't mean the martial artists are bad. Doesn't mean there's nothing to learn from them. It's just not old. It's not traditional. Um, and it is part of this nationalist project. Shaolin martial arts is a nationalist project. This was created by the Chinese government. They put the money in. They were the ones who brought the Chinese, the Hong Kong film studio, to Shaolin to do the movie. And now it's part of tourism. Uh, so, and again, this is what happens when your wife is an architectural historian. You tend to have architectural historian quotes. To be modern is not a fashion, it is a state. It is necessary to understand history, and he who understands history knows how to find continuity between what, that which was, that which is, and that which will be. 
Um, you know, whether you like, like his buildings or not is another issue. Uh, traditional, I put that in quotes, martial arts are therefore a type of martial arts, not an older system or a practice tied to an ancient culture. It was not that modern martial artists invented the category of traditional martial arts because they were doing something fundamentally different physically, but because they were creating a new category of practice. Part of that practice was an effort to separate martial arts from nationalism and political control. So if it's traditional, it doesn't matter who the government is. It's traditional, I can be a traditional Chinese martial artist and I don't have to worry about the government. Now what happens? The government says, oh no, no, we'll control tradition. So there's a struggle over that where the Chinese government very much wants to control tradition and control what are traditional martial arts. There are martial arts out in the countryside in China that we do not know about. Much of it has died out because of, it was intentionally stamped out by the Chinese government. And some of it just ran out because not that many people practiced. Um, to claim that uh, Chinese martial arts, for example, or any martial arts, uh, that a martial art solely focused on self-defense effectiveness is, is, this is that that's, this also claims that there's an objective realm of combat. And I said at the beginning, there is combat, and it does have an effect, but there is no objective realm of combat. There is no realm in which it's okay for you to fight the same in every context. You cannot just kill people in most modern Western societies. Uh, some people, if you get into a fight, what's acceptable to do in a fight is very different. What's acceptable, if I feel really threatened, you know, what I can do, or some guy pushes me in a bar. Some guy pushes me in a bar, am I gonna start doing groin strikes and, you know, you know, is it okay for me to, you know, elbow him across the face, and if he goes down, you know, you take a, you know, is that okay? Is it effective for a Western man to punch another guy, that's okay? Can I kick him in the shin? Ah, well, that's not good, but if I, if I do a, a, a leg kick, a Muay Thai leg kick, that, that, that's masculine. You know, that's okay, because then, you know. I can. So these things are, well, how much damage can I do to someone if threatened? What's acceptable? I mean, I'm, I'm in Tennessee, where as an academic, I have to get a waiver that I don't have to carry a gun. You know, but, but in America, there are places where I think, well, you know, he got into an argument, I, I shot him. Like, how, why did you shoot him? You got into an argument. So all, there is no objective realm of combat, except for I'm fighting for my life. We are not usually fighting for our lives. You know, if I call you a name, you know, uh, uh, you're a Trump supporter. You're not allowed to kill, you know, don't do that in Tennessee, because they actually are armed. Um, so, um, now, to return to my earlier comment, I'm going to go to, uh, Confucius makes this point. Um, a true teacher is one who, keeping the past alive, is also able to understand the present. Which is to say, sad to say, or maybe wise to say, Confucius got it right. 2,500 years ago. Uh, we don't really need to go beyond that. Uh, there's a reason why people still listen to him. Mixed martial arts is an admirably open system of practice that seeks effective techniques rather than a mastery of a defined curriculum. But by being mixed, it draws from arts identified with different times and places. And they, no matter what, you, however you incorporate those techniques, they still come from where they come from. Um, and this both reifies and transcends time and location. So a Western wrestling technique is valid, useful, and desirable if it works. Um, but it's still a Western wrestling technique. So I was rolling with some guy, and he did something. And I said, oh, was that, oh, that's a wrestling technique. Great, show it to me. 
But it's still, and, and you should do it, oh, that's a Western wrestling technique. Now, you'll be thinking about this. This was like the movies of the 1960s and 70s, which I'm going to come to, where they would do these things and someone said, oh, you're using that technique. And it was a question of intelligence. Can you, of knowledge, can I, can I recognize your techniques? It's connoisseurship. Um, They're still kept separate um, so that a martial arts, a mixed martial art, uh, a mixed martial artist's martial art remains mixed. The only way it remains mixed is by keeping distinguishing that these are different traditions that I'm drawing from. Because if you stopped doing that, then you wouldn't be mixed anymore. You would just be some new thing. Um, T.S. Eliot, am I getting too literary for you? Um, tradition without intelligence is not worth having. Okay. So to return to my earlier comment about most mixed, that most martial arts in China had studied multiple arts. Teachers exist and existed providing instruction in what they knew, what they were good at, or what they themselves had invented. Everyone understood that no single teacher had a complete skill set, a complete art. It's only in the 20th century, uh, this construction of martial arts for nationalistic and educational reasons, that we obfuscate that meaning. Movies create these ideas of transcendental martial artists whose realization of ancient styles make them invincible. Sometimes these martial arts fights, as I said, particularly the classic movies from the 60s and 70s, we get this demonstrations of connoisseurship. You know, oh, you're using that style. Well, but I have the answer to that technique because I know this style. Ah, oh, you're very, and then, then we sit down to tea afterward because we're not really about fighting. We're, you know. um, and then we get Kung Fu Panda, perfectly summing this up. Uh, the modern construction of traditional martial arts. Master Wu Gui invented it. Uh, at the Pool of Sacred Tears, where Wu Wei unraveled the mysteries of harmony and focus. This is the birthplace of Kung Fu. And the further you get away from him, the less good you are. As, as if, you're close, if, you're, if you're close to the source, right? Talk about, remember I brought authority. It started in a time and a place with a person. As the closer you get to that, the better you are. The further you get from that, the less good you are. You start dropping things out. Now, of course, the idea that some legendary founder discovered the martial arts, that the founder's art was the most perfect and effective art, is only true in fiction. How many years would I have to study at Shaolin to become a master? And what would that mean anyway? If I studied there for 20 years, could I reasonably claim to know that whatever system they were teaching, you know, would I then be able to say I was a master? So we have to recognize that there is no tradition to return to, and that traditional martial arts describe a kind of practice, a path among paths. Modern martial arts, mixed martial arts, competition martial arts are subjects of the broader picture. Now to get back to showing why I'm right and Barry Allen's wrong. Uh, it's always important to show that you're right and the other guy who isn't here to defend himself is wrong. Um, it's almost as good as being behind someone when you start a fight. Um, so which is to say these are subsets of martial arts. And, and now let me find my last point here. And what about martial arts studies? Because that's what we're all here about. Thus far, no master Wu Gui has appeared to invent the field of martial arts studies. Or has he? <laughs> <laughs> My 11-year-old uh, was taking a photoshopping class earlier this summer, and I, I asked her if she would help me out a little bit for a slide. So you, you can keep that one. <laughs> Thank you. I think hey, I should thanks go. very much. Um, for the record, I feel like Terry Wogan. I'm going to go back to um, that and leave that one up. I need to make uh, a point of clarification 
We're not in England. Oh, that's, I'm terribly sorry. You're going to get your head kicked in. Uh, well, I, you know, um, I shouldn't put so my mouthpiece. So we need to capture the audio. Um, uh, I'll pass you this, okay? Uh, so if anyone would like to, we've got a few minutes for questions. I'm going to try and keep us on time. Um, so be gentle in your answers. Um, I'm always gentle. Questions, anyone? Responses? Outrage, enthusiasm? Outrage. Outraged Welsh nationalists. A colleague of mine in a different field of research once said that verbatim is the best revenge. <laughs> and, um, there's and a comment you make about two-thirds of the way through. Hmm. Um, in the past, there's a lot of really cool stuff, and a lot of stuff gets lost. Hmm. Should probably be the, uh, the motto and the coat of arms of experimental archaeologists, I think. Hmm. But um, most of the discussion you've given us really talks about notions of tradition mm. and uh, authenticity as fairly volatile constructs. Yeah. But to say that there's a lot of cool stuff in the past and get lost implies an objectivity of existence for things, practices, knowledge, mm. items which can get lost, time's arrow being a one-way pointer. Um, doesn't that therefore imply, within your own argument, a case for salvage and preservation as an activity, um, which yeah. would be a way of looking at tradition as something other than a purely opportunistic construct. That there is something going on in terms of preservation of lineages and bodies of knowledge. Well, I, no, I would absolutely agree. I mean, that's, and ultimately, as a historian, what you're doing is trying to find stuff and, and, and bring it up. Uh, I'm not against that. I mean, I guess what I'm against is at the other side of it when you when someone comes to you and says, "Okay, now that you know you pulled up some of this stuff, now it means essentially that it means more than it means." Uh, I was talking to Paul on the way up, and some person had contacted me. As pe people contact you uh, for documentary stuff, they after they talk to me, they never speak to me again. Uh, for obvious reasons, and and this person, you know, she wanted to talk about, you know, martial art. What martial arts styles were they doing in the Tang Dynasty, and um, their practitioners of qi, and how they were doing that. And I said, you got. I said, if you're if you're putting that in, you're you're writing fiction. So I'm not saying it might not happen, but I have no data. So what can I reconstruct? I can reconstruct people who were doing this stuff. Uh, Dao Yin, which. Qigong, people who practice Qigong claim that Dao Yin is the root of Qigong. There is actually no reason to believe that. But if you do Qigong, that term only comes up in the 20th century. And if you want to claim it to be ancient, so you go back and you say, well, they were kind of doing the same things we're doing. Well, were they? And this, and this person pointed me to a website and said, see, and the website, by some Chinese professor who's recreated, Dao Yin practices for the present. And he says, well, you know, Dao Yin shows up in the Zhuangzi. Dao Yin doesn't show up in the Zhuangzi. It's not there. Phrase isn't there. Now, we, we all like to talk about, you know, Mencius has this line about cultivating his flood-like qi. We have no idea what he's talking about. So the problem is, as a, if you take an archaeological point of view, you pull something out of the ground and you don't have enough context, you've got an object. And at some point, the archaeologists, being rather you know, serious, sober people, say, we got this thing. And right now, we don't know what to do with it. You know, we found it in this place in this time. 
But if I, you pull that out and someone says, I know exactly what that is, you know, that's a cell phone holder. You know, and you're like, oh, I don't think so. No, 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 they didn't have cell phones back then. How do you know? Well, we never found any. You know, so, so I mean, I'm totally agree with you, but I, I got criticized uh, in the martial arts book for using the archaeology in the early chapters. Because there were martial artists who were really annoyed that I was talking about, well, you know, we have these weapons, and the weapons are of a consistent kind, which means they presumably had a fairly consistent use. Now, has anyone tried to, I am not aware, has anyone tried to recreate how you use a guh halberd? Uh, I mean, they do it in the movie, you know, with this one thing, but you don't see people going out there in the park saying, I want to <laughs> do that for some, and it's arbitrary. So that, I mean, for me, I guess my point is, I, I'm totally for all the reconstruction, like I said, I'm, I'm translating the, um, I'm going to do two things on translating that wrestling text. One is I'm going to translate it, the other thing is I'm going to go back and do what he couldn't do in the 10th century. I have better research tools, and I can run all of the key <laughs> phrases that he uses through digital databases and search thousands of Chinese texts and I can actually get a better read on stuff he should have had that in the 10th century he didn't have. I, I, I think it's great that he did it. I wish I knew who he was. We have no data on him. So, but no, I, mean, I totally agree with you on, on that, but it's, it's just the category that calling it tradition validates it. And that, that's the thing that troubles me. Okay, one more Thanks very much. I was wondering, why did Qi Jiguang get rid of his curriculum? Okay. So, um, <laughs> and, and we run into this a very serious problem because he doesn't say. My argument, and this ties me over to my other stuff on gunpowder and guns, is that, so what happens is he goes, he's sent down to the south to fight the uh, um, Woko pirates, the, and I will use scare quotes, Japanese pirates, who are most of whom are Chinese, um, and live in the area that they're raiding. But they get these Japanese samurai over, and he goes down there, and he has to create new military units because the old standing units were garbage by that point in the Ming. So he's got a bunch of farmers, and he clearly doesn't have enough weapons. He's basically got, he doesn't have enough guns. They do have guns, but very few. They don't have enough regular weapons. He's doing this on the cheap. And he's taking a bunch of farmers, and he's thinking, shoot, what am I going to do with these guys? So he teaches them to fight, I think partly uh, in the same way that you know, the US Marines do this stuff with the, um, what do they call it? Yeah, pugil sticks, yeah, yeah. And you know, why? You're, they're not going into battle with pugil sticks or, or sharp versions of that. You, you, aggression. And, and training them to move, you know, and there's uh, all these arguments about, you know, that the basis for all movement is staff technique, but, and that actually shows up in other cultures as well. But what he realizes is after he goes back to the north, and there's an intermediate, there's another, he publishes another book in the middle. Um, so he goes from 18 chapters, he publishes a nine chapter book, and then he ends up with a 14 chapter one at the end. And he's up on the northern border, and he says in a discussion, we're facing the Mongols, and the only advantage we have over the Mongols is guns. And I think what happened was he basically got better equipment, and he realized that the hand-to-hand -hand combat was useless. It just wasn't working. I mean, we don't want to think that. But honest to God truth, you know, despite what Hollywood has, our, our guys in the military, even in the special forces, are not unarmed combat masters. And I think he just drops it because it's useless, and he gets more guns. 
And you know, what are you going to stand there? Okay, the Mongols are coming. You know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and the Mongols are going to be like riding by, like. <laughs> hey, did you put the kumis on? You know, and, and so that, that's probably why I think he dropped it. It just it didn't work out because he also drops archery as well. He just gets guns. And once you have guns, are you going to train your guys with guns? Or are you going to train them in hand-to-hand -hand combat? Okay. Well, let's thank Peter Lord one more time. <laughs>